Builders series, and we're continuing uh, with another value. This is be house value number four. House value number four. Again, we did generosity last week, but this week we are continuing on, and this is a value that you, if you've been at Artisan for a little while, you've heard me talk about this one in a lot of different ways. You've heard our team talk about this one in a lot of different ways. And the reason why this value should be so obvious that it is a value of our church is because I really believe um, it's one of the, the number one challenges that churches currently face is, is the lack of this word. Now, one of the motivators for me to build a local church is to try and help people find community. That is one of the reasons why Renee and I started to feel a burden. We started to watch so many people get isolated separated, and it was like the older we got, the less friends everybody had. It's like as you trend older, the relationships dwindle. We started watching more and more people get into isolation, and one thing, just so you know, the stats are out uh, during COVID and during the last couple of years as isolation um, ha- has increased, so has mental health struggles, so has anxiety. I just talked to one woman who's involved uh, with counseling in the first service, and she said uh, it went from about 17 to 18% of Americans seeking therapy of some kind to 40%. I mean, this is not a small jump. This is a seismic jump where people are going, I'm struggling in isolation. And so why do we talk about this so much? Why do I preach on this so often? And I'm going to continue to do so. Community is going to be a part of what we value because I believe it's so important. Did you know that 49% of Americans, this is a study that was done by the Survey Center on American Life, 49% of Americans would say they have less than three friends. That means like one or two friends. One or two friends. 49% got one to two friends. That means if we cut this room in half, half of you would only qualify two people in your life as a friend. Somebody that you trust. Somebody that you really value. Somebody that you love your relationship. And even worse than this, uh, the the, the sad reality of that is that is up from, so 49% in 2022, that's up from what was 27% in 1990. It's almost doubled the amount of people who have less than three friends. Less than three friends. 12% actually said that they've got no friends at all. Nobody. There's not one person in my life that qualifies as a friend. That's more than one in 10 people would say, I have no friend at all. This is why we state this often, sort of a catchphrase we've developed at Artisan. It's that we believe you cannot afford to do life alone that this is life or death for you, realize that a pre-fall condition was the need for community. What did Adam, what did God say about Adam? Oh, it's not good for this guy to be alone. He needs somebody. He needs relationship. He needs community. There needs to be more. There needs to be connection. There needs to be human connection. The problem is sometimes we can sort of start to get convinced that like we're just a little bit better by ourselves. Like it's just a, it's a little bit easier when I'm alone. And if you remember during the Shame Game series, we talked about how often we choose short-term pleasure that leads to long-term pain. That's isolation in a T. 
So, so it feels really good to just get me time right now. But if that me time is extended, how many of you know, you start to get pretty weird. <laughs> like, like you do. We stop grooming ourselves as well. We, I mean, like, it's like things just start going south quick. We don't notice our scent. We don't notice the weird. We start to get socially, I mean, the isolation, it starts to make us weird. But at first, it can feel really good. No one's offending me. No one's hurting me. No one's challenging me. No one's, no one's making it uncomfortable for me. So I can just sort of hang out by myself in isolation is a win. And all of a sudden, we're like, no, no, I just, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a do-it-yourselfer. I'm a, I'm a loner. I'm loner Lucy. Like, it's just me. I'm solo Steven. Like, I'm good on my own. I'm Han style, solo. You know, like, I just, that's my, that's my deal. But at some point, we need to arrive collectively at the conclusion, if you're in church and you want to build artisan, we have to agree on this fact. We have to agree that we are better together. If we do not have that common ground, if we do not agree on the statement that we are better together, this is not going to work. As we build, again, the house on the foundation of Jesus, right? He's that foundation. As we build this house, if you do not believe that the community with disbelievers in the end will lead to you being better and that we're better together and that we can do more. How many of you know your builder offering might be very little, but when we all put our offerings in, something amazing starts to happen, right? We are better together. You cannot afford to do life alone. But come on, adults. Like, I transitioned from working with teenagers for so long and then now I work with adults, 18 and up, and uh, done a lot of counseling, a lot of meetings, a lot of moments, and I realized how much so many of us, we're still carrying the same problems and fears we had in high school. Like the number one fear we still have when it comes to social environments is we, do ne we never want to be the kid alone at a lunch table. That social anxiety still carries over to adults. You know this? Like you walk into a room, and like one of the easiest ways to prove it is that's why we come in a little late to church, right? <laughs> we don't want to have to be standing alone, awkward in a lobby, right? Uh, when, when we got together our whole neighborhood at our neighbor's house for a get-together on Friday night, the first thing I'm looking for is like, who do I know so I don't look weird? You know, like who do I know so we're not the ones that have no one to talk to? Who, who, who do we know here? And you like cling to the person you know, even if you don't remember their name, which I didn't. But, and uh, how you know, that gets real weird. You're like, oh, no. Oh, names are hard. But, but, but we, we, we just don't want to be alone at the lunch table. We don't want to be that one. And so sometimes it's just easier to stay home. It's easier to stay isolated. It's easier to be in this different environment. And, but the reality is, the wisest man who ever lived, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 9, says two are better than one. Do you believe it? Do you, do you trust scripture? Do you believe that two are better than one? Like, really test it. Because they have a good return for their labor. Did you know the world's actually figured this out? I read an article recently, and I, mean, I wish I, I, I should have looked it up again and, and cited my source, but... Um, you know, it was just a major news outlet, but they had ran a study on uh, how if you uh, want to be intelligent, that marriage is the best thing you can do financially. 
So they were encouraging marriage because they're like, trust me. And they'd done this whole study on merging two incomes and how much more affordable it is and how America is pretty almost impossible to live on one income anymore and the affordability of marriage. And actually partly the reason why millennials have so little savings is because we waited so long to get married. So we, we delayed getting married, and so we had to spend every dollar we had as we were getting older because the average age of people getting married is like 30 now or whatever. There's this whole study, and they're like, they're figuring out. The world already knows, hey, this makes sense. It makes sense to have a partner. It makes sense to do life with people. It makes sense to pool some resources. This is, this is wisdom, but it goes beyond just financial wisdom. How many of you know there's something so much deeper about community? If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone, church, who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. Only if you're married. You only do that if you're married. Jesus' name. This is getting a little risque. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, Solomon, you can be more clear here. Like, you need to create some distinctions here. A couple people get excited. (laughs) But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands, and here's a famous verse, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Many of the most famous passages, by the way, have something to do with community. Because there's so much about it. There's so much about the need for community. A cord of three strands, it's actually a multiplication effort. It's not addition. It doesn't just get three times as strong. It takes a cord and turns it into a rope. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Right, Deuteronomy tells us that the mathematical factor of the kingdom of God, it's not addition, it's, it's actually multiplication. And Deuteronomy tells us that one can put 1,000 to flight, but two could put 10,000 to flight. And you start to see over and over again that there's a multiplication factor that happens when we start believing in community. We get a good return for our labor when we work together. You have to do this together. Your greatest resource, church, is always going to be found in your relationships. I relish my relationships. I relish the people in my life that I've invested significant time, effort, and built life with. I relish my friends. They are just a rich resource of life for me and I for them, and it's this beautiful exchange. There's something so amazing, and you're cutting yourself off from so much help, so much love, so much challenge, so much growth that can happen when you begin to push all of your relationships away and you choose to move towards isolation. But the tension here, and, uh, the truth, true fact is relationships and community, it takes real commitment. It takes commitment. I had a conversation recently a friend of mine, and um, he's pastoring out in California, and, and, uh, but he's on staff as well with a, a new app that's being developed out of the UK called Glorify. And it's this uh, awesome app um, that's supposed to help people with their daily time with the Lord, just making it in a way that is a little more engaging, a little more practical, and really help just everyday Christians get in the Word more, hear from heaven, spend more time in prayer, more time in worship. And, but they were, the U.K. is trying to figure out how they can best serve. It's, it's blowing up in the U.K., but they're having a little more trouble getting it into the American market. And they're like, how do we serve churches? And so uh, my friend has just called a few pastors and done some interviews to just ask questions and um, how to, so they can learn how to serve and get glorified here in America. And, 
and we're having this conversation. Have you ever had someone ask you a question that maybe you'd never like been pushed to an answer before, but the answer just comes out of you really, really quickly, and you're like, oh, I guess I believe that. Uh, this is sort of what happened in this conversation. He asked me these questions, and he actually said, what do you see as the greatest challenge coming against the American church today? Now, I think there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things that we could throw out there. You know, like, oh, well, you know, the political climate, and I've been hearing more and more sound bites circulating around social media about how there's certain uh, political um, 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 perspectives that are going to try to remove the tax exemption status from the church. Like, that'd be pretty bad if we lost our tax exemption status. There's churches all around the world without their tax exemption status that are exploding and growing and reaching people. Like, there's, there, there's so easy for us to put it on these really surface things, but the, what came out of me, and then I tested it as I talked, the first response I had is, is, I said, what's the greatest threat to the American church? I said, lack of commitment from its believers. A lack of commitment to community, a lack of commitment to evangelism, a lack of commitment to being a builder. To say, you know what, I'm going to really do this. We have cultural Christianity has been developed. Again, we talked about being a consumer versus a contributor. And it's just become so easy to consume in church. It's become so easy to slide in the back and sit in a chair and not be a part of it. And the problem is the person you're hurting the worst when you do that is you. Because Christianity isn't very much fun in the back seat. Christianity is not designed to be a bystander. It was never built to facilitate that. So you're actually saying yes to Jesus, but you're relinquishing all the power that he offers. Because if you're not on mission, if you're not moving forward, if you're not committed, there's no reason for the gifts of the Spirit. There's no reason for him to move in power. There's no reason for him to, to, to move in your life in that way. Why? Because you're, you're not moving the kingdom forward. But when we get committed to community, when we get committed to the cause of Christ, when we get committed to the gospel, when we get committed to values like outreach and improvement and all and generosity, all of a sudden, we start to become a threat to the enemy because we're starting to move the cause of Christ forward. But when we lack the commitment and we sort of sit back and we get comfortable, all of a sudden, things start to shift. And actually, what's happening in America is not church growth. There are churches that are growing, but they've done a deep dive now. It's a consolidation. What COVID did was close down a lot of churches under 100, a lot of churches under 100, and those people had to go somewhere. So where did they go? They consolidated. And so there's been a consolidation, but it's not been an evangelistic effort. We have not seen an evangelistic explosion on the other side of COVID in America, just so you know. We've only seen a consolidation of people who already accepted Jesus. And so there has to be this commitment to the community and a commitment to those values of things like outreach and builders and going out and being effective. We have to be committed but the problem is, when I get committed somewhere, I end up getting uncomfortable there. Like, when I get committed, I, I just, I had no idea what I was signing up for when I signed up to be a coach for a second grade girls basketball team. I thought I was a glorified babysitter. And here, all of a sudden, I sign up, and the amount of work that they're, I mean, I had to take classes I had to go through tests. I had to go through background checks. I had to go to clinics. And I was like, what did I commit to? I am so uncomfortable. I barely even know basketball. What was I thinking? And I even asked the guy, I'm like, Dad, do you really need, like, do you really need me? Like, I, I tried to out myself. I did. I go, I, 
you know, I, I was a baseball and hockey guy. Maybe this isn't for me. And he goes, I need you. And I'm like, no, couldn't you just somebody else? You know, because all of a sudden you're like, I didn't know what I signed up for. And sometimes we do that. It's like we like, Jesus! And then you find out what you signed up for. You're like, whoa, die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Commit, give, give everything. My life is an offering. Like, no, thank you. Can I, can I have Jesus and none of the discomfort, please? But the problem is he didn't offer that. And part of the discomfort that he offers us is the discomfort that comes in community. Because we go, I like Jesus. He's perfect. <laughs> Jesus hasn't let me down. Jesus still loves me. Jesus is loving for me. I mean, all these different pieces. But them, they let me down. They hurt me. They cut me. They disappointed me. They said something I didn't agree with. I didn't like it. But see, here's the problem is when we read something like Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, arguably one of the most famous Proverbs, that is iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens Another, we're like, isn't that nice? We're just here. And here's Paul and I. We're just encouraging each other. Oh, praise God. Isn't it great? We're sharpening each other. And it's all hugs. And it's all, it's all you know, just nice, good feelings all the time. Have you ever sharpened a knife? <laughs> you ever done it? You ever had a grinding wheel where you're, you're pressing the blade to wear out? You ever had a really, like, knife with kinks out of it and damaged and rough edge. You press the blade. It actually gets red hot. It heats up. And the more pressure you do, how many of you know the sharper it gets? But it's not comfortable for the knife. I mean, it doesn't have feelings, but it's, it's pressure. It's heat. It's friction. But you're just like, la, 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 just like nice and easy. Daintily try to sharpen your knife, you're still not going to get through that tomato. And even once knives are sharpened, they still can't handle tomatoes. Why is that? Why are tomatoes so hard to cut? Like, just, I don't understand. But, but there's this reality, there's this, this friction. And so we read this verse, we're like, I want to be sharpened, that sounds nice. I told this story maybe 18 months ago, but there was actually a mentor in my life. He actually looked me in the face and he said, everyone in your life right now is just polishing you like a marble statue being shaped, and everyone's just polishing you. He goes, I'm going to file you down. <laughs> like, he said this to me. And I was like, no thanks. I like all my polished people. Like, come on, encourage me. <laughs> Tell me how great I am. I like that part. And he's like, I'm going I'm to file. And, uh, and I didn't enjoy it. And I, and I lashed out, and I, even though I knew what he was doing, I still got frustrated. I still got angry. I still got all this stuff because he was pressing on the discomfort. What does a doctor do when you hurt, right? One of the, my teammates on the flag football team, yes, we came in second place. Let's go, second place. Lost to a bunch of college kids from North Central. Shout out North Central. But, but right, he, he's got bruised ribs. If he goes to the doctor for his bruised ribs for playing flag football, what's the doctor going to do? Is he just going to look or is he going to press? And you're like, doctor! What's he doing? He's, where does it hurt? Where's the, I, if I'm going to fix this, i got to press first. And I got to press in and feel the pain and pressure the pain and discover what's actually wrong. And you see, sometimes there's people that are sharpening you and they're like, here's a rough edge and I got to press this. I got to put pressure on it and I'm not going to waver. I'm going to push you into this. And we're like, I'm out. I'm out. I committed. I said I was in for it, but I am out. No, thank you. I didn't know you were going to be honest with me. <laughs> I thought you were just going to say what I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. And so we don't actually like the feeling of being sharpened. 
But how many of you know on the other side of it, you're going to be much more effective for the kingdom of God? And sometimes God will put us in community with people that are going to sharpen us. Sometimes they're going to do it intentionally like that mentor did for me. And sometimes it's just the personality you need to spend time with because it brings out the worst in you. And you need to grow up a little bit and learn how to handle being around that personality type. So we had so much fun when the Enneagram was so popular because it's like we all know which Enneagram number we don't work well with. And we're like, oh, oh shoot, there uh, you fill in the blank if you know Enneagram, right? But we discovered this when we went to Tulsa. It's like, oh, we finally get to move away from those people. And then you get down there and you're like, you're down here too. You're everywhere. Because God's like, I need you to learn how to be in relationship with these people. I need you to learn. They're going to sharpen you. The, the friction isn't because they're terrible. It's because both of you are actually in each other's lives to help each other grow and get better and work off the rough edges. And so you can be sharpened. Communities, church, are shaped by how they handle conflict. How you handle conflict is such a determiner of long-term health or deciding on dis- long-term dysfunction. It's such a determiner. How, how, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to be shaped by this conflict? Human conflict is the number one causation of people seeking counsel. We see this over and over again. People come into my office or they go see, there's always, what are they going to talk about? Conflict with humans. It's an inevitable part of life and community, and it's just going to be a part of the journey. We need to get better at handling it. We need to get better at having communication. Almost always, the advice that I end up giving at the end is, hey, maybe you should go talk to them. Go have a conversation with them. Hey, maybe actually, oh, they hurt you. Tell them that they hurt you. Like, have a, have a conflict moment. Be okay having a hard conversation and build community. There are relationships that sharpen us, and then there's relationships that dull us. A couple quick signs of relationships that are dulling you. Number one is the friends or the relationships or the community that excuse you from the challenges of life. Oh, that's too hard. You don't, you don't need to do that. Like, that's, that's too much work. That's too hard. Your boss should never expect that much. No, you know what? Take the easy way out. You know what? You deserve a night to cut loose. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's just one Friday night. Like, it's not going to hurt you forever, right? Just cut. It's the people with the voice of compromise that are dulling you. When you know you've got a conviction for something greater, you know that God's called you to a higher standard, you know God is trying to lead you to a different place, and you've got this voice in your life that's constantly telling you what you deserve, that you deserve this. Here's the reality. I don't trust people who tell me what I deserve because I actually do know what I deserve, and I don't deserve the grace of Jesus. I don't deserve his unmerited favor and love. And I'm trying to say, hey, Jesus, because of what you've done, because of the undeserved grace, I'm trying to live according to your word. I don't deserve a Friday night just to cut loose whenever I want to. No, no, I have to say, you know, I'm going to stay true to my convictions. Because some people, again, that are going to try to dull you, there's going to be a pressure to abandon the deepest convictions of your life. That's why we started with a conversation about Jesus being the foundation. The deepest convictions of my life are from the words of Jesus from scripture. So when people are speaking for you to compromise on the convictions that Jesus spoke, understand they're asking you to compromise your foundation, which will make you question your whole life. And all of a sudden there's this ripple effect 
Because the enemy's like, man, if I can get them to believe lies about the foundation, I don't even need to damage the house or the life they've got. If I can get them to question the foundation, it's all compromised. One crack in the foundation, everything gets out of alignment. So people are going to sometimes come into your life, they're going to challenge you to step away from your convictions. They're going to manipulate you for personal gain. That's not a healthy sharpening. Have you ever had someone try and use and abuse you in a narcissistic way where at the end of the day, it's just about them. It's about them moving forward. But some people are going to come into your life and they're going to sharpen you. And it doesn't always look like something peaceful and easy and nice. Sometimes it's sparks are flying as, as, as the knife is being sharpened against the wheel. And it's pressure and it's hot and it gets heated. And sometimes it's good. Why? Because at the end of the day, one of the best ways to know is this healthy community and are we managing conflict in a healthy way is to ask this question. Am I fighting with them or am I fighting for them? Because if all I'm doing is fighting with them, and try, that means I'm trying to win an argument. If I'm fighting for them, that means the motivation is that we're healthier on the other side. Winning an argument is cheap, but fighting for somebody is such a stronger motivation. A friend of mine that pastors a church out in D.C., he had a, he had a series that he had just recently, and I loved this line. He said, um, uh, uh, c- community is work but it's worth it. Communities work, but it's worth it. And I really believe this, church, the work of community is worth it. But it is work. It's effort. It's time. It's commitment. It's hard sometimes. We need to get stronger staying power. We need to be a church of people who are saying, I'm going I'm to stick it out. I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to go through some friction. So I'm going to go through this. That's why this value is talked about so often. It's why we approach the question of community with every program we launch. The fastest way we cut something that we try here at Artisan is when it doesn't breed community. If community is not a byproduct of what we're doing, then what are we doing? If socials aren't working, we will stop. If, right? If, and, but how many of you know that when we see that it does build community, because guess what? Over 60 men showed up to play flag football on Saturday. And there was about 40 spectators cheering on. And for three hours, we all just hung out and laughed and competed and, and, and just did life for three hours. Guess what? That's a win. Probably we're going to do that again next year, right? Easiest thing ever. You want to know what it cost the church? Zero dollars. We had all the gear. Cheapest, easiest, like win. So it's always like, hey, what was the ROI of community? That's what we look at as a staff. Did, did community happen or did we spend money and no one actually built community? No one actually got to know each other. Why do we launch tables? Why do we value it so strongly? Because we believe the work of community is worth it. And yes, I understand the first time you walk into that house, it can be uncomfortable. But we believe it's worth it. It's worth it. Sign up for a table. Do it. Do it. We're going to add even more tables next year because we haven't had enough space this semester. So we're seeing that hunger build in our church. But I want to end as the keys come on up with a beautiful passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And I think it's just, it's so helpful. He said this. He said, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. I, this, this caught my attention, so I kind of got on like a, I kind of nerded out, like, what, what, was he, what did he mean by work hard among you? Especially we're in a builder series, and again, building takes work, and I was like, I was interested. What did that mean? And, and a lot of scholars, as they've done word studies and discovered this, 
there was a there was just like any church, even the early church, there was those that were sacrificing a lot to build the church. They were sacrificing their home, they were sacrificing their finance, they were sacrificing their standing in the community. They were they were they were using their education because not a lot of people could read, and those that were educated were sacrificing more time because they were studying scripture. And then oh, we're going to get to it. Then they had would admonish publicly, literally. What he means by those who work hard among you, this was not just some sort of church staff. It was all of the lay leaders who were sacrificing. That's who he's talking about. Anyone who's sacrificing to build this local church in our city. That's who I'm talking about. Acknowledge them who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, church. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, here's the really good part. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. In other words, word study there, this could have also meant timid or somebody who had a low opinion of self, like they were self-denigrating. They were, they were talking bad about themselves. Help the weak and be patient with everybody. So this passage gives us a perfect litmus test that we can filter the effectiveness of our community through. And this is, this is a question you can ask yourself. Every single one of you can choose to be one of these people who works hard amongst us. How do you become one of those people? When you choose to warn and correct the idle and disruptive. Idle here meant somebody who was capable of helping and chose not to. Disruptive, we are a church. There's been moments where people have had ill intent and they have decided that they want to create division in our church, not unity. So the conflict comes from a place of division, not a desire of unity. Just so you know, we are a church. We call that out. We handle it. You don't hear about it because we value privacy at our church, but we're handling those types of conversations. We see somebody with a, with a heart of division. That's one of the first things we go, we gotta meet with them. They need to meet with an elder. They got to meet with me. They got to meet with a pastor. We, we got to address this. There's divisiveness in their spirit. There's divisiveness there. And they'll list a bunch of reasons on why they left the church, right? Not because we had a meeting with them. They'll list all kinds of things and slander us, and that's okay. But at the end of the day, for us, when there is somebody who has the intent to disrupt, it's so important that we say, you know what? Actually, we're, we're going to warn this. There's always warnings. Hey, I see this behavior. Hey, I see this happening. Hey, you got to check yourself. Hey, this is damaging the church. We got to have eyes for that. That's protecting the unity of this community. We have to protect this community. And every single one of us can play a part in that. When you hear somebody, it always shows up first in gossip. Always. Always. Like, like I, I'm trying to think of an example where it first didn't come out and weird things they said. You'd always hear it first. What if it didn't take a pastor to call out the gossip and the slander of the church? What if we all protected this community so strongly? We go, hey, well, there's no place for that kind of talk at our table. There's no place for that kind of talk at our Coffee Connect. There's no place for that kind of, no, no, we, we are builders. We are not breakers. What are you doing? That's not unifying conversation. And if there's a problem, go talk with them. Adopt this phrase. Every time someone wants to gossip with you about someone else, this is your phrase. Oh, what did they say when you talked to them? Oh, you haven't? Then this conversation's over until you do. I have nothing else to say to you about them. You go talk to them. 
What if we all protected on that level? We warned the idle. We warned the disruptive. We have to encourage the disheartened. Again, disheartened here being this low opinion of self. And it's really easy to, when you see somebody insecure and struggling, it's really easy to be like, well, I don't want to like talk to them because what if I make them more insecure because they find out that I noticed that they were insecure. And so I just, you know what? It's so easy. Any of these, you could kind of convince yourself out of them, right? But who's disheartened? Who's just like, man, they just, they're disheartened about where they're at in life. They're disheartened about their progress. They're disheartened. Come on, we got to be a church that encourages them, uplift them, speak life into them. Come on, they're a part of this family. You're a part of this community. We love you. We're going to encourage you here at Artisan Church. You got this. We're going to say phrases like, you're doing so much better than you think you are. I believe in you. You Come on. You got this. We're going to help the weak. We see people struggling with something they don't have the strength for. This is when we're better together. Hey, let me help you with that. Let me help you. Do you need help? Oh, church, I, I really believe this, and I even feel the Holy Spirit right now. One thing I just, I've noticed, this happened on so many occasions, where people in our church need help, and they're just hoping that someone notices. And then they're angry when no one did. So many examples of this within our church. Can I encourage us? Be willing to ask for help. What if the lesson is not God's trying to just bring you somebody you didn't ask for? What if the lesson is God's like, I need to humble you, and you need to be humble enough to actually ask for help? Church, I ask for help all the time. All the time. I've got people I'm calling. I recently bought a plane ticket just to fly with somebody that I needed their help from. They didn't have time to meet with me, and so I said, I'm getting in your world. When you're traveling, I'll hold your Bible and I'll travel with you because I need your help with something. So I literally got on a plane and took two days to get their help. I am going after help. I'm not asking you to do something I'm not willing to do myself. We all need help. What are the areas you need help in? Go get it. Go humble yourself. Admit that you need help. Why is that? There's no, like, like when you ask for help, people are always so like, oh, that's awesome. It shows humility. It shows character. Like, and obviously if they stick it to you, they're a jerk and walk away from them, whatever. But, but ask for help. We have a benevolence page. We have a prayer and care column. I'm honestly surprised sometimes at how little people ask for that help. Then, oh, nobody showed up for me. Nobody prayed for me. No one's mind readers. You got to ask for help. But we're going to help those who are weak and struggling. And then at the end of the day, church, as we close, we got to be patient with everybody. Put those back up on the screen again. Warn the idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. And be patient with everybody. This is a practical step that all of us can take. Amen? Can you do this? Yes. You can. You can. All of us can be a part of this. And protect this community at all costs. And believe in it and say, I'm going to be a builder of this house. I'm going to be a builder of this community of faith. And I'm going to support it with everything I've got. Church, would you stand with me all across this place? And the prayer teams are going to come forward. I think one of my favorite community moments, just so you know, is when somebody has the willingness. We've been in a season, actually, where there was a while where we are doing a lot more altar calls and collective. And I've been really stressing these prayer teams. It's actually intentional. Because sometimes if you respond to an altar where there's not a prayer team member, it can stay between you and God. Sometimes the biggest, most powerful thing is to believe the scripture where it actually says, where two or more pray for something in my name, it will be done. Did you know scripture actually encourages 
over and over again praying with somebody, praying with somebody. And so we're just really in a season where we're pushing this. Hey, anything going on in your life, be a part of the community. Get prayed up. Get prayed for. Have a moment with somebody before you leave. Um, But I'm so encouraged. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for this community of believers who are signing up to say we're in for the commitment it's going to take. We know it's going to take work, but it's worth it. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's so worth it, God. And I pray for those that have felt on the outside, where they know that they are loved, they are welcomed in, God. Would this be a place where they feel safe, where they feel like they can be, uh, tr- there can be trust built up in Jesus' name. God, I pray for those relationships right now that you highlighted in our minds. Would we do our part this week to go and do as the Apostle Paul wrote? Would we, would we begin to be a, a builder of relationship, a builder of community, not a breaker of it? So, Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you're doing in our midst and in our church. And it's by your powerful, wonderful, mighty name, Jesus, we pray. And everybody said...